Welcome to The Old World Lives, a World of Fantasy Battles podcast. You can find us on Facebook at The Old World Lives, on Instagram at The Old World Lives, and you can reach us by email at theoldworldlives at gmail.com. And now, on to the episode. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of The Old World Lives, a World of Fantasy podcast. I'm Christopher, and this is an episode that we thought would never happen. And the person that is supposed to do did the main topic. He failed to make the intro, but he managed to ma- make the main segment. But enough about that. Let's introduce uh, the other two who are with me tonight. And I got Nicholas. Hello, everyone. And Jimmy. Greetings. Yeah, we've been bugging Krell to do this episode for so long. I think like we managed to do two episodes in between. Cause, yeah, I yeah. think so. Because we just never got the like the schedule like, okay, you can record this day. Oh, yeah, me, but not Krell. Or Krell can when no one else can. But now I and, I finally tracked him down and just said, Krell, we're doing this now. And everyone was like, where the hell is Krell? And finally, he opened his mouth. So what we're talking about is that this is finally our vampire special, which was supposed to go out, as we've been alluding to, I think in February. But February, May, basically the same thing. Yeah, sounds about right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but before we get on to the main segment, uh, let's talk a bit about what we've been up to. Uh, who would like to start? Jimmy, maybe? Nah, I'll take the last piece. <laughs> Want the spotlight for yourself? Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. So, Niklas, what have you been up to? Uh, I've been uh, I've been playing a lot, actually. Playing a lot of fantasy. Uh, we will talk about... Uh, uh, me and Jimmy actually went to Poland to play. We'll talk about that in the next episode. Although I should never say it's the next episode because probably we'll make <laughs> like a couple episodes between, but hopefully <laughs> the next episode. Yeah, yeah, we hope so. Yeah, uh, but we went to Poland to play a doubles and uh, I've been playing some at home here in London. Uh, last week, actually, uh, there were four of us playing our Border Princess campaign, uh, including a new guy. Uh, Joseph, uh, the guy who organized the uh, Bringing Back 6th Edition uh, event, uh, has done a great job of recruiting some new players. So our group is growing here, which is great. Ooh. So the old world doesn't, n- not the, it doesn't just live, it grows. That's nice. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so we got a, a nice 6th uh, Ed community going here. Um, and uh, other than that, I, I've been painting some dwarves. Got the dwarf hype going on again. Uh, played some uh, Warhammer Total War again as the dwarves trying to conquer the world. That usually helps to get it going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and lose a lot of painting hours. Yes. Yeah. I, I got yeah, to tell myself hey, to do like... It's, it's inspiration. Yeah. I got to tell myself t- tell myself to do like every other day Total War, every other day painting. Uh so I've been playing like all weekend, and then finally yesterday I sat down and I painted uh, the runesmith that I got from you, Christopher. Yeah, it's a really nice one, and I'm yeah. so glad they finally arrived that when they did. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was chaos. Swedish puzzle service. Yeah. yeah, for those who don't know, I sent a package to Nicholas, and it basically got lost in the local post uh, terminal, and then returned to me three weeks later, instead of going to Nicholas. <laughs> yeah. After you asked for it. Yeah, and they didn't refund me the postage. I had to pay for it again. That's just brilliant. Oh, God. It's ridiculous. Uh, but yeah, they, they finally arrived. So now I got a bunch more long beards. And this, this runesmith, I've, I've always wanted this runesmith model. It's just one of the classic models. Yeah, it's a great one. 
the more dwarves, the merrier. Yeah. Seven merry dwarves, hopefully, by the end of this week. Yeah, hopefully. So uh, what have you been up to, Christopher? Well, I've been painting an eagle, which for some reason got a massive hair in the Facebook Messenger photo up. Because <laughs> for some reason, the Birdie bird. talons and beak, for some reason, confused the camera app to focus it as a head. Because I, <laughs> I tried, tried to change it to, to all of the other ones, and they still focus on that one as a head every time. So it's, uh, yeah. Uh, it's pretty fitting, though. It's a nice, like, Galadriel hairdo. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of uh, just make that uh, eagle my archmage on a, on a great <laughs> eagle. Yeah, it's magic. Yeah, maybe you should turn yourself into an eagle. Yeah, only using eagles. That's perfect. Eagle swords masters, eagle spearmen. Yeah. No, but uh, I've been making one eagle that's finished, and I got one eagle on the way. And when both of them are finished, they will go up on as proper pho- photographs on our Instagram. So until then, you will have to make do with uh, the lovely eagle with a long blonde wig on it. But it's still a pretty bird. Yeah. I've also prepped and primed a an archmage from uh, Avatars of War, the highborn elf mage. That's on the painting table. And uh, I am in the process of prepping 30 archers as well. Oh, that's great. Yeah, you're really kicking off this uh, high elf project. Yeah, because they're obviously dark, dark elves. <laughs> <laughs> you know how it is. When, you, when you finally get inspired, you have to see the project through. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking like I should finish the last uh, five uh, light horse for my kill stuff. I picked them up and was like, nah, I don't know. And then I was like, I really want to paint dwarves. And that's just the way you got to do it. Like paint what you want to paint or nothing will ever get done. Yeah, good advice for everyone, I think. Otherwise, you will just be stuck with half painted models or projects that never leave the boxes. And on top of painting stuff and actually finishing something for once, I've been trying to talk people into coming over to my place and have a game weekend. I think I can come, but I don't know which weekend is the most open for me yet. Uh, there's there's several ones we can we have to choose between. So yeah, more that if Krell listened to this, which is Probably unlikely, because he don't really like <laughs> to listen to himself. Um, why don't you just, yeah, you know, say if you can come or not, would be nice. Yeah, Learn there with all the, the sushi. Oh, that's true. I actually had some today. It was lovely. Yeah, there's like this, this is it a buffet close to you? Yeah, there's a uh, Thai slash Chinese slash Japanese restaurant that got a lunch buffet. So it's basically 98 kroners for how much you want to eat. That includes yeah. the sushi. Yeah, he's teasing the rest of us in the the group chat yeah. all the time every single time and i'm sitting there drooling like oh god i need some sushi yeah the only harsh limitation to have on the sushi is that you can only take eight at a time <laughs> but you can take <laughs> as many plates as you want so it doesn't really matter <laughs> so that's what we definitely have to do when uh, we have a game weekend all right jimmy now tell us what have you been up to well uh, like most people have seen i finished off my night goblins for the moment and uh, i'm currently painting up my mordheim warband for mordheim 2019 and i'm super thrilled to be going yeah yeah i'm so excited for you oh god i have so much things to do (laughs) i i I need to paint up these models and i need to help uh, restoring our dungeon table because uh, i'm gonna bring my well not mine uh the the group that i rent the 
the hobby basement with their I'm, I'm gonna borrow their uh, dungeon table for more time and we gotta restore it because it's uh, been a bit of chipping and uh, yeah so how, how are you getting there are you taking the the ferry no i'm gonna go by air and carrying yeah. a table no you, you know it's like all the tiles are 30 by 30 centimeters big and oh. they all fit snugly in a in a big case. Nice. And it's uh, sometimes it can be actually quite fun to repair tables that have actually been used because you know that they've been used. Oh yeah. Uh, speaking of repairing tables, I need to repair my own <laughs> Mordheim table. It has a bit of chinks of paint losing off here and there on both the buildings and the ground. Luckily, all the fish are still glued on. You know what you have to do. You just have to scrap that table and build a new one. No, I need to pay for a new one. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, other than that, I'm just planning on to build my works so I can face off Nicholas later this year. Yeah, we're planning another uh, linked campaign with the last uh, last Christmas. Yeah. Uh, yeah, hopefully I'm going there this year. <laughs> I gotta... <laughs> you better be. Make plans with my family. But yeah, that's uh, also why I got so excited to paint dwarfs face off the green tide yeah straight after the war of the beard yeah yeah it's gonna be good yeah other than that i haven't been up to anything well speaking of planning should we spoil something this episode or next spoil it now well we are planning a little event this this fall this fall yeah this fall somewhere in sweden we will host a tournament that sounds a lot better than my poultry voice. Uh, <laughs> but we are planning on a, as it stands, hopefully, up to 20-man uh, Ravening Hordes tournament. Yeah. What was it, did you say 1,500 points? I think we're somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000. We haven't really decided yet on the specifics. That could also be something that uh, you, listener, if you want to join in, send in uh, what your preference is to us so we actually know what people want to play. Because that makes planning an event a lot easier if we actually know what people want to play. Of course, we'll also ignore it if we want to. Oh, yeah. That, that's all right. Yeah. yeah and uh, we're planning on uh, planning now on holding it in Stockholm. So it would be fairly easy for people to go there from other countries as well. Yeah. And it's fairly easy to get accommodations or well, travel in general, everything, other than hosting it outside where other of us lives, where there's basically nothing around. It's also very easy to get drunk, but you didn't hear it from here. That's true of all of Sweden. Yeah. So, more details. Ravening Hordes. That's an important Ravening detail. Hordes. That's set. Stockholm, pretty much set. With DFQ and uh, Erata. Yeah, yeah. So those two things are set. Ravening Hordes with uh, the Erata. Other than that location, we are looking at uh, a few different venues. And uh, that will be updated and uh, put out as information to you whenever it's sorted and decided. Niklas, you better be there. Yeah, I, I'm gonna gonna make it my, my first priority. Good boy. So with that said, just get in touch if you want to go or have any in interest in the event. And uh, let's move on to uh, what's probably the last thing we are talking about this uh, intro. And that is the made-to-order halflings on the GW web store. Yeah, it's uh, made-to-order. Depending on uh, when this episode is out, you can still buy it. You might have a few hours, even days. Uh, Halfling Hotpot is great. 
uh, for those that didn't know it. It's a rare choice for uh, Dogs of War. And, yeah, uh, and, and for those listeners out there, it's still a rare choice for the Empire Army in the Ravening Hordes book. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, and it's great. I mean, it's like a catapult. You shoot its, its hot stew or whatever it is. It's, it's a giant yeah. slingshot. It's a <laughs> yeah. giant slingshot that lobs soup. <laughs> yeah. And uh, like it just melts people. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's also uh, the Blood Bowl Treeman, if you want an alternative Treeman. Yeah. Speaking of halflings, there's also halflings coming out for Blood Bowl. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, if you're up for some conversion, they would fit nicely into Mordheim. Yeah, definitely. Warband. There's a lovely one with a squirrel on his head. Yeah. You could use uh, halflings uh, as Toxic War as well. Indeed you can. And if you want to make a moot-based empire army, they would probably fit in there as well if you do a bit of conversion. Maybe add some weapons and shields or something. Indeed. And uh, if you're just into Blood Bowl, they're great. They're made for the top players who like to play the game on hard mode. Fair enough. So, do we have anything else we want to talk about? Um, uh, I just want to shout out that uh, there's a couple events in uh, England this uh, this fall, or autumn. Uh, there's two tournaments, 2,000 points tournaments. And me and Joseph are doing the, the Albion real-time campaign. So there, there's still some spots left for that one. So if you want to play in a really cool campaign, then, uh, I don't know, where, where to find it easiest. Just, but if you're listening to us, you'll probably know how to contact us. So it's right here if you're interested. I'll send you a link. Time for Krell will go on and 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 on about vampires. Yeah, it's a great segment. I think you guys will enjoy it. By all means, try and stop him. I won't stand in your way. Beat them back, chop them down, hold the line, carry the day. Cover yourself in glory, or in guts, it makes no difference to me. Or to the dead, for that matter. You're just postponing the inevitable, lad. Mark my words, they'll get us all in the end. Black Rupert, veteran of the Vampire Wars, on fighting the undead. Ah. Good evening and welcome to the Old World Lives. In this segment, me and Christopher, also known as Krell, will be going through vampires and undead in general. That is correct. Uh, today we're really tackling my favorite army. And uh, as Nicholas briefly touched on, I'd like to call them vampire accounts, but we're actually going to go back to the heyday of 4th edition, of which we have a very special listener who wants to talk more about in the future, and talk about Undead, which started out in the 4th edition. So we're going to make some oblique references to game cards and the six-wound basic characters. I've never played 4th edition. I started out with 6th edition and some 5th ed when I started back in the day, but a lot of this is pretty unilateral. I mean, it's the same stats and... I'm just basically going to touch on that. We're going to talk about the lore, the characters, play styles, and why you would want to throw yourselves into the heady grasp of midnight aristocracy. Yeah, this is great. I'm really excited because I don't know a lot about the undead and the vampire counts. They've never been like one of the armies that I've wanted to play, but I always like seeing them and like playing against them. Uh, because they're just the, a perfect bad guy. 
Yeah, you're like uh, you're like Lucy Westerland in uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I'm just like a swarthy Romanian sweeping in for your bedroom window, seducing you with cool Games Workshop figures. Yeah. Um, so let's just touch a bit on uh, vampires and undead first, in general, because they're like whenever I think of them, I always think like, ah, oh, that's such a classic fantasy thing and it feels like when they created this world it was obvious that they were going to have undead and vampires in because they're just such iconic mythical beings right yeah and i mean if we go back to what you and i would consider the standardized fantasy vampire character i think obviously it owns a lot to the great forebear of bram stoker's drake dracula way back in the 1800s but as far as I can recall, just having undead in there has always been a, like a staple fantasy trope. You can go back to the Hyborian adventures of Conan the Barbarian. I think even Enkidu in the Epic of Gilgamesh, like 4,000 years before BC, he fights into the undead. You have, of course, Hades, who's a pretty misunderstood guy. Basically, resurrecting the dead has always been this intangible dream, and it ties, of course, into both regrets of the mortal world and wanting to make undone what's been. Because just like turning back time, it's sort of a staple thing of what you want to be able to do. You want to be able to go back and hug the people you wish you could have hugged before they passed away or basically caring for those that you didn't have enough time for or could just, you know, undo or what just, you did wrong. Uh, or just call them back to uh, eat the villagers of a small empire village. Yeah, I mean, and that's just the natural impulse we all have and struggle with on a daily basis. Anybody who's ever worked in an office thought like, God, I wish somebody bite off Betty's face. Oh my God, no! And I mean, it's a good idea. But no, you're right. As soon as way back as Warhammer Fantasy Battle 2nd Edition, there's always been dark magic and it has a distinction into dead magic as well. Uh, something that's outlined pretty clearly in the 4th Edition book is that you can become a necromancer wielder of the undead of any number of reasons. You don't have to be like a classical bad guy. And it touch, touches on a lot of like old uh, vampire necromancers who started out with just wanting to bring back their loved ones, or having the power of undeath to help their village, and then they sort of go off the deep end. Uh, even yeah, yeah, uh, it's just cool that uh, that the undead are they're mostly humans. Uh, yes. Only humans, actually. Ah, so the like the thing I found interesting is that uh, uh, so they're not like their own race, like the the bad dark elves or uh, other races that are inherently evil. I think uh, what fascinates people about uh, necromancers and vampires is that uh, they are monsters, but they are also humans, and they have their human motivations. And yeah. vampires in particular, that they're so civilized, and you can talk to them, but like deep down, they are cold-blooded murderers. Yeah, and you get sort of both of the flip side of those coins within the classical and iconic von Karstein family. First of all, you have Vlad, Vlad von Karstein, who at times can be very sociable and he actually takes into protection those who yield to him. His villages are the best run in the entire of Sylvania and he does have aspirations of becoming a legitimate electrocount. And then you have, of course, his successor, Manfred von Karstein, who is just insanely megalomaniac and will kill anyone who upsets him. It's like you say, it's a fascinating subject because they chose to be who they are. And in very few instances do you share any regret over this. Um, yeah, I'll just tie into it because it says way back in the fourth ed book that it seems a strange subject that there are none high elves who chose the necromantic ways, nor dwarves, nor the ratmen of the Skaven Eye, nor those who would come from the other islands such as Lustria, because lizard men aren't super fleshed out here. In truth, it is easy. 
the dwarves have little capacity nor time for the magic that runs within them. It haunts them still. The Skaven are too busy backstabbing and plotting to have much to run with it. The elves find little time, maybe because they have such many years in front of them, they feel little need. No, in truth, it is verily only the humans who would turn to such dark ways to prolong their own existence. And thusly, the natural shape of the necromancer is an abomination, one who would strive against the natural order. Yet, curiously, they are anathema to chaos. And that's something they touch on way back in 4th edition and even before that, that chaos and the undead really despise one another. Yeah. That's really interesting because uh, the undead, like when they raise them back from the dead, they kind of steal the souls from chaos, right? Yes, yes, they do. Uh, it's basically the recalling of the souls that were otherwise promised. And way back in, I actually checked, tried to read the third ed book, but it's hard to get a hold of. But in third ed, fourth ed, when you call a white into being, uh, basically you call a soul that was stolen. And since many of them are great warriors, like even Krell of the Black Axe. Uh, you deny the souls of righteously promised to chaos, but it also goes a bit deeper than that because chaos doesn't just want to destroy and despoil, it wants to consume everything. And you can't be a badass hard rock, 80s glam rock, necromancing warlord if there's nothing to rule. You need people to keep propagating, and chaos is against that. Chaos wants to end all things, it is, after all, the great adversary. Yeah. So, uh, <clears throat> where, where do the undead come from from the beginning? So that's actually one of the best things with the Warhammer 4th Ed Undead book. I figured, not having read this book to book, like binder to binder before, I thought there were going to be a lot of information about vampires, but the first 15 pages are just a solid accounting of Nagash the Great Necromancer, which is uh, a bit disheartening to me, but it gives a very good accounting of from whence he came. Uh, Nagash, whom most of us will either know from his uh, old schooly super skeleton pope, or the new style, uh, end, end Times uh, Super Flying Swirling Skeleton Death Machine, was, just to summarize it briefly, he was a mage who came from the ancient <laughs> Egyptian equivalency. And back in these days, Tomb Kings and Vampire Counts were basically one in one. So Nagash uh, strove against the natural order. He started meddling in death magic. He wanted to bring the death rites of old Egypt sorry, fantasy Egypt, into the modern world by combining the living and undead. He wanted to rule over everything. And by subverting and destroying the rights that were readily available, he took black periapt and he turned it onto the living. Thusly meaning that he brought the living dead back to life. And with it, he tried to conquer the army. However, he was overthrown and thrown into the desert for his insane ways because he experimented with blood magic, death magic. And it's actually a bit funny because it says here that the Lamian whom took unto themselves the ways of Nagash and experimented, albeit in solitude and with greater discretions, the way of the blood binding. So they also just hand wave. That's where vampires came from, fourth edition. Nagash, so, yeah. I heard that the Nagash started doing this after he captured some dark elf magicians, right? Or sorcerers. And uh, yeah. from Sorry. them, he learned some magic that kind of turned into this. Uh, yeah, it goes a bit deeper than that. They make an allusion to basically the Cryptonomicon and the Mad Arab of H.P. Lovecraft, and they have someone who wrote the Book of the Dead. And Nagash took the Book of the Dead, and it's 2,000 years for the Age of Sigmar, and he's, let's see here, you're probably right. Well, actually, back here, he didn't. He took the Book of the Dead, he despoiled the living dead, 
And uh, then he started conquering. Yeah, nope, with the priest kings of Camry. However, you're right, because at a later instance, while he went through desert and he was literally dying alive, uh, he came to Cripple Peak and he set up a big, big fortified uh, fortified fortress, which basically looks like a giant... What's the name of the Grayskull castle that Skeletor has? <laughs> the giant stone fortress that looks like a skeleton. I mean, I love the art from this book. It's very 80s hard rock. It's like giant skulls, the living dead, giant magic effects. Yeah. So while here, uh, he was actually in the fourth edition, one of the reasons Nagash is so powerful is his vast consumption of warpstone. Uh, he lives among the warpstones, he breeds the warpstone, and at some time he even makes his blood the warpstone. <laughs> so uh, basically, he, he lives among the warpstone, he gets into an uneasy alliance with the Skaven, and then, upon his greatest eve, he captures the descendants of those who banished him from Khemri, uh, Egypt, and he enacts a giant ritual and gathers forth the greatest army that the world has ever seen. And he makes it march on Khemri. And at this juncture, even the Skaven start going like, hmm, this is not going to work out great for us. A, he got all the Warpstone. B, he's going to ruin the world. We kind of want to rule the world. So they break out a great hero whom Nagash has imprisoned and give him the pure Warplade Skaven Blade the black blade with which he will stab Nagash to death. And he does. And this was a bit of a surprise to me because they keep mentioning a hero. If Chris and Jim were here, you know the GL Hazard right now, right, Nicholas? Of course. Don't you know who this guy is? He's like <laughs> the most famous guy ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we'd be like, no, I have no idea. Yeah, uh, when you told me this name, I, I had never heard it before. Alkadizar. So it's they want to say Alkazar, the great hero, but it's Alkadizar. And so he stabs down Nagash, and then he does the only intelligent thing to do, of course. He takes the giant golden crown of untold evil and puts it on his own head and runs off to rule his own kingdom. Classic. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why you do that. Also, uh, he keeps the, the Skaven war blade. <laughs> See ya. Yeah. He's like, well, uh, Ratman, fuck y'all. And then he runs off and founds his own kingdom. And Nagash, having been chopped to pieces, is resurrected 2,000 years later, gets all his stuff back together, makes an arm, which is literally a power fist at this juncture, fueled by Warpstone, and then decides to fight Sigmar. <laughs> like the Sigmar. He fights the Sigmar in a duel. It doesn't really work out for Nagash. Spoilers, sorry. It doesn't really work out for Nagash. Uh, and he gets beaten to ground. What are the odds, though, that he would resurrect during the lifetime of a human. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because apparently the only way to get a human response out of Nagash after this juncture, because he comes back, because of course he does, all undead does, is to mention Sigmar, because they have like a small postscript where a man invokes the power of Sigmar while fighting Nagash, and Nagash just guts him. Something I think you'll find interesting is that throughout the 4th edition Undead book, they have transcripts and extracts from Felix and Gotrek. Felix and Gotrek <laughs> are pretty much your guides. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, it's uh, Felix walking around and looking down on people, complaining on the food, and Gotrek saying that basically his dad fought against the armies of Ngash, and Felix has to do some quick mental arithmetic. People like, wait, how old was your granddad? Oh, yeah, no, you guys live like 300 years. And then, and then finally, the books comes unto the vampire counts of Sylvania. <sighs> Worry not, 
they quickly jump over that part five pages later. <laughs> so anyway, the fourth edition uh, vampire 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 count slash undead Warhammer army book is of huge significance for three parts. The first one is it's really rich in lore for the undead as well as the old world in general because they talk of a lot of very clear staples that will later come back in all parts of Warhammer Fantasy. You have Musillon, the Cursed Cities. Uh, they speak of Mordheim. They they also speak of a called call, place called Nordheim. I don't know if that's a temp, that's a typo. Is there a place called Nordheim as well? Because they have like two or three times. Probably. I mean, yeah. it seems like yeah a perfect made-up name for the Warhammer world. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, yes. Uh, next to Mordheim, we have, of course, Nordheim. <laughs> you have the Plain of Bones, Drakenhof Castle, which will be familiar to anyone playing Total War as well. And uh, then they go through the staples of Vampire Counts as well. What we should remember is that back in this day, all the undead armies were not only in one book, but basically you had a free license to use any sort of undead you wanted. And going through the stats and speaking to Nicholas before, I was just I was flabbergasted at some of the things you can have in this book. You can have, of course, mummies, rites, whites, ghosts. And one of my favorite things, and I don't know how to describe it other than saying that it's basically an undead knight in a blackened armor riding an undead pterodon, the flying dinosaur. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've seen those models, actually. They're tiny, though. Yeah, you you faced Tomb Kings once, right? You know they're like flying vultures to carrion? Yeah, yeah, but the, I think those those things that you're looking at now, weren't they in 6th edition Vampire Hands as well? No, no, those are Felbats. I don't know. I think I've seen those, though. They're, they're yeah, adorable. because that's what became the Tomb King carrion. Here, basically, they're like knights riding undead dinosaurs, but later just became like bugs. Uh, they also, hilariously enough, they mention things that wouldn't come back for like several years, like Krugerishta uh, and his cursed company, you know, the Dogs of War. Yeah. Setra, Tomb Kings of the Kemri. He's in here for the first time. And then you have a lot of characters that you wouldn't see for years to come, like Krell, Heinrich Kemmler, uh, Helman Gorst, who, who didn't come back until Total War, I believe. Uh, Nagash, of course. If you've ever played anything that is not 4th edition, 5th uh, edition, or the end times, you'll be happy to know that you can actually play Nagash, which is the equivalency of, I guess, playing Dungeons and & Dragons and playing Tiamat, or like one of the super end players. And Nagash costs 475 points, plus 35, plus 100, plus 100, plus 40. <laughs> yeah, because well, back yeah, in the day, you had to calculate yourself. Yeah, and they, they put all the items separately, right? Yeah. So you couldn't get any clever ideas about changing items. They just would be abundantly clear. This is what you get. Um, so before we uh, move on to 6th edition and the departure of Vampire Counts and Tomb Kings, uh, just while we're still at, still at the lore, what's the difference between uh, uh, the Tomb King undeath and uh, Vampire Counts undeath? Very good question. Uh, the Tomb King undeath could be compared a bit more to pharmaceutical rituals. Uh, the undeath that the Camry use, both in the Tomb King book, and I'm no expert, but also in here, is basically ritualized around the great and the pyramids of the undead, uh, the ritualization, and the fealty. The Tomb King's resurrected warriors all have fealty unto those who arise them. A Tomb King, a Tomb Prince, they serve in undeath, and many of them considered a great honor. You can also see the difference in like the giant statues, the Ushapti, that the Tomb Kings use 
which is basically carved giant stones infused with sorcerer's dead. And the only comparison that the undead have would be like a black coach, which is uh, basically an animated wagon fueled by the sorcerer's dead forcibly imprisoned. The so vampire, so are, the, yeah. are the Tomb King skeletons already sentient? To some extent. I mean... It's a bit like if you remember the old Necrons for 40k, the longer it goes, the harder they can remember anything. And the basic skeleton, the basic skeleton bitch guy for the Tomb Kings, can only remember duty. So he's awakened and will do what they say. By comparison, the vampire counts force people to force them. And their, their beings have basically zero sentience. The only exceptions are hero level characters and above. A necromancer, of course, has sentience and some independence, whether he wants power or serve or just wants a better lot in life. The ghouls are of eh, variable intelligence. But then, of course, you have uh, the whites. The rest are basically bound slaves. All right. the, the grave guard and the whites are men who have been defeated, great heroes or the barrows of those who served, who are awakened, and they know nothing but blind obedience. So basically, it would be like having mentally an army of grave guard. So uh, also, the Tomb Kings, uh, they're put to sleep for like long periods of time. Uh, and then like a lich guy comes along and raises this army, right? Yeah, if I remember correctly, it's basically inverse. Have you ever seen The Mummy? Yes. The Brendan Fraser movie? Yeah. You know when they remove all his organs? Uh, no, I don't remember that. Okay, spoiler to a like 25-year-old movie that can now legally <laughs> drink even in Sweden. Uh, they extract all of his vital organs and put them in separate jars and he has to collect them. In the Tomb Kings, I believe they bring in the canoptic jars containing their essence and importance. And when they awaken the Tomb Kings or the Tomb Prince as it is, they have to go through a very big ritual to ensure that they are properly brought back. So they are awakened when needed. You're correct. So, uh, so did they do this before Nagash started meddling in Undead? Or did he try to refine this somehow? Or is this, did this come about after he was active? It's a good question. Basically, what you get from the book is that they had always done it, but it was ritualized and only in times of great need. It's like they'd always had a collection of badass sports cars. And then the youngest kid, Nagash, tried to hotwire them and take them for joyriding and conquer the world. He forcibly tried to resurrect entire, entire families and make them do the bidding instead of ritualized doing it. It's the difference between, I guess, demanding and requesting. And Nagash brought all of that about. Also, before Nagash, uh, you could resurrect and have a tomb king, but you couldn't live like live, live, enjoy the world of the living. And that's what he refined and introduced in the form of vampirism. Vampirism itself isn't really touched upon that deeply in the Forfed book, but we'll come around back to it in Six Dead. All right. I feel well, like if uh, I knew more about Tomb Kings, I could give you a better answer. <laughs> <laughs> I only read like uh, a couple of pages in their army book. Uh, this friend asked me like how they work, and I was like, I have no idea. There's also a guy. There's also a guy. I've just two things I miss from Fourth Edition. Uh, three of them. The first one is Dieter Helsnicht, the Doom Lord of Middenheim. <laughs> who is a super powerful necromancer who ruled out of Middenheim back in the day. He ruled in Middenheim? Yep. Or like uh, yep. before Sigmar or when? I think after Sigmar. It's very vague, but apparently they had a Doom Lord necromancer in Middenheim at some juncture. But you know, <laughs> good going. <Yeah. laughs> Maybe the lecture council should have got on that. Uh, the second one is... Uh, in 4th Ed, you could have a Lich Priest, which is basically like the classic Lich from Dungeons & Dragons. It's a necromancer who is so powerful that after death, he retains powers and becomes immortal without becoming a vampire. 
they changed that a bit in 6th and 7th ed by saying that a necromancer that is sufficiently powerful doesn't have to become a vampire or a lich. He just keeps on living because he's fused by death magic. And one, uh, a last thing I actually missed from 4th ed is the Screaming Skull Catapult, uh, which is just three skeletons loading someone else's skull into a catapult and shooting <laughs> it against the enemy. Well, the Tomb Kings have that, though. Yeah, they it's do, cool, but, but it looks a lot cooler than the Tomb Kings. I just like this like, <laughs> goofier older thing. Yeah, that looks kind of like a, a ballista catapult. Yeah. Other things introduced in 4th Ed is, I don't know, if you play against Undead, oh, you, you were there when we played, you can do a spell called Van Hel's Dance Macabre, which is basically you get another free move. They go through the legacy of Van Hel's, which is a great necromancer. And basically, I think this book, 4th Ed, if you ever played Vampire Counts, I'd really recommend it as a companion book. Because a lot of things that he have later has really been built on the structural basis that he put down here. All the characters, the spells, how magic works. I'd really recommend it. It's a great read. And it, uh, again, I cannot overstate how much I love these like 80s, 90s graphical depictions of skeletons and necromancers. You know exactly what I mean, right? Like early 80s skeletons, screaming yeah. guys, swords raised theatrically onto the sky. Yeah. Yeah, old books are really great. Yeah, yeah, of course you know you 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 play Kislev. Oh, that, that's not that's not that old actually. It's on the sixth edition. Isn't it older than you? Um, no, I'm pretty sure it's not. <laughs> You're like, and, that, so, and that's where we tragically lost Krell. <laughs> Probably Sonic is the top because uh, Kislev was in uh, fourth edition, fifth edition. But now we're talking oh, yeah. uh, undead and vampires. So yes, and my petty attacks on your character aside. Now we're moving on to Sixth Dead. Yeah, the edition of Kings, the King of yes. Editions. Uh, so yeah. in Sixth Edition, they, or Tomas, in all his wisdom, decided to split the Tomb Kings and the Vampire Kings. Yes. And, I mean, one of the things he touched on, both in our, as well as the other Warhammer Fantasy podcast of choice for discerning 8th edition players, the Electric Counts. What he said is that Games Workshop were actually surprised by what a runaway hit that the Vampire Counts were. And yeah. I remember like back in the day, if you we went to the Games Workshop and you met like eight fancy players, you'd probably meet two or three who played Vampire Counts. Yeah, it was a really cool army when it came out. Like uh, I remember like when I went to look at Warhammer, they were definitely one of the, the cooler armies. They did, and in 6th edition, of course, they split them into five separate bloodlines which meant that you could basically take any sort of vampiric stereotype as well as a couple of ones they'd invented themselves. I'll get to that later. When you open up the Vampire Counts 6 that bug, the first thing that strikes you is that this is dedicatedly about the Vampire Counts. Uh, you can take any of the bloodlines, you can play it any way you want, but it's very much fixed in Sylvania, Musulion, as or the Silver Peak Mountains, where, of course, Neferata, uh, who founded the Lamians, and is also related to that super famous Tomb King girl. Man, Chris is gonna execute me for this. Uh, yeah, the it, the chick with the snake. Yes, <laughs> the chick with the snake. <laughs> well, anyway, she's related. To, um, yeah, So yes, so basically, what the outline here is that while they introduce every bloodline of the vampires. Lamian, Blood Dragons, Strikoi, Von Karstein, and Necrock. Uh, they have like a blurb. In the Lamian one, you get like a short story about a young teenage girl that infiltrates a Kislev camp, and he has tried to protect her and do their best, and turns out that, surprise, she's a fucking vampire and eats all of them. 
in the von Karstein one, you have about a vampire hunter trying to fu- hunt down a vampire, and oh, it's it's really funny because it says like, should thou be in danger, throw ye the holy water of Sigmar and make it unto him the abomination unto earth, the sign of Sigmar with the ring therein, and he has a torn off finger and he's crushed the uh, holy water. <laughs> And for the blood dragons, the blood dragon really have the best story. It's about Aborash, uh, the first blood dragon, who was one of the greatest warriors in all of Kemri, which is where the Tomb Kings are from. And he fought aside Neferata. But basically, when the vampire aristocracy of the Tomb Kings, and that's really outlined in the tale for the first time in the sixth edition, because the undead fourth edition book, I guess you could make a case that they focus on Agash, so he wouldn't really know a lot about the vampires. But in 6th edition, it's made very clear that upon the ousting of Nagash, Neferata made clear... No, no, not Neferata. Yeah, 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 Neferata. <laughs> Neferata made clear that the ritualization of the vampiric was something that was introduced at court. So at first it was her Svein's and like the chosen ones and then spread to the other families. And of course, the unsustainability of having not only a 1%, but also 1% that feeds on blood and eats your subjects while not expanding is sort of not working out. So they get ousted, uh, both by other tomb kings and neighboring countries, because of course they want more and more. So upon that, all of them are separated, uh, except for the Strigoi. The Strigoi, if you've ever played Vampire Counts, is basically... Uh, the ghoul kings in later editions and here they they most commonly refer to the huge the huge hulking abomination sort of vampire hobo vampires yes the super powerful hobo vampires (laughs) the cave dweller Uh, basically they have more strength and toughness but they they suck at magic you know it's like if you ever played fatal fury or like a fighter game street of rage you have the quick but weak one you have the strong middle of the road and then you have the super magical one and the sort of weak but fast one yeah you have all of them in here it's the barbarian yeah vampire but coming back to a discerning gentleman called aborash he was the temple guard and he fought well and long for neferata but upon them being ousted he's one of the guys who literally went you know the reason we got fucked over is because we really fucked up in trying to exploit everyone all the time and us being dependent on drinking other people's blood is a weakness and a strength. Whereupon they went like, oh, Abrash, you're so silly. So he wandered around the world, uh, refining his martial skills, thinking that the vampire sickness of having to drink blood was a weakness to be overcome, just like any warrior who would train it away. So while crazed on vampire bloodlust, he wandered the world, fought everyone. And then one day he encountered a huge red dragon sleeping. So he awakened it, he fought it, and then he drank its blood. In a blood fury, he drank all the blood of a red dragon. I don't really know how he could drink all the blood. Anyway, he did. And he went into a fury, then he fell asleep and woke up. And now he no longer craves blood as sustenance. Badass. Yes, the blood dragons are badass. It sounds really like a, like a mythological tale as well. Really cool. It does. And again, I mean, you have clear references here both to Gilgamesh when he went to hell to get back Enkidu who was his best friend and you could say that it reminds also of Beowulf and Grendel but Grendel the the beast man is a bit like the Strigoi this is the character class that Thomas told us that he created for vampire counts and you can really tell it's a labor love because the blood dragons are well rounded they have a very clear motif because you can understand them like immediately okay the warriors who want to go beyond being dependent on blood 
but also want to improve themselves continuously. So it's an appealing concept. And it also lets you do an army that is a, a vampire lord, but you get one power dice less. And you can still make a strong martial tradition classical warrior army. So you have a lot of high armor, you have skeletons, but you can also play into that warrior's architect. And the short story they get is of a young Grail Knight seeking out a blood dragon and getting defeated but spared. So the Grail Knight realizes that he can improve as a character. And the blood dragon, as he rides away, remembers being a young Bretonian knight himself. The blood dragons will only make vampires out of the greatest of warriors. So they're like a secluded monastic order. And many say that Aborash still lives, hmm. which is also all kinds of cool. Then you have the von Karstein, classical Bela Lugosi, uh, Christopher Lee. Welcome into my home. Drink and be safe. Uh, basically, they're middle of the line. They get uh, no super advantages, no disadvantages. You have the Strigoi that we spoke about, the hobo super vampires. And it's kind of sad <laughs> because... Uh, upon the ousting of uh, the vampire lounge, you had Ushuran, who was a powerful vampire lord, and he challenged all the other lords for supremacy. <laughs> However, uh, they fought him and decided that no one should rule all vampires at once, so he went west into the empire. And there, Ushuran, he founded a village, and he created the kingdom of Strigos. Uh, unfortunately, the kingdom of Strigos were raided and attacked, both by greenskins, ravening goblins, as well as vampires who came to destroy him. So in spiteful hatred of both of men and in the other vampires who had driven the orcs against him, or so he thinks, uh, he decided that all of the Strigoi from here on out would only live in the dregs of humanity. So they're sort of known for both rousing the cannibalistic ghouls of the empire and simultaneously living in crypts, sewers, or other out-of-place uh, stuff. Um, out of the place situations. Unfortunately, playing a ghoul army is really hard in 6th edition. It got easier in 7th edition as you got more spoiled for choices as well as an AFED. But here their suggestion is at the end of the book that you can make your own units, which we'll get to. Um, so the ghouls, yeah. what are they? Uh, they, they are they kind of like just devolved humans? It's, right? a good, it's a good question because in 6th ed, ghoul live. It's basically scavengers, cannibals, uh, people who feast on battlegrounds, desperate, dispossessed people who are unwanted. Uh, in the earlier books, they sort of make a reference to them being people who are despised within the empire, who have no choice except to live on the dead. And they gather around the vampire who treats them less shitty than everyone else. So here, yes, they're you're like uh, they're super only Igors. Yeah, they're super Igors. They're like the uh, dregs I... for more time. <laughs> I read uh, the the Bretonia book series, the Knight of the Realm and Questing Knight in that, and uh, there were some ghouls in that in Museum, and they were explained really good. Then I'd, I'd definitely refer to that one. Uh, playing ghouls in Sixth Ed was difficult for another reason. They only had metal sculpts, and you had to buy like 10 of them at a time, and you needed a minimum of 20 for one unit. So, yeah. Yeah, the the new or newer plastic sculpts are really good. I love those models. They're really good. And I mean, they're one of the best things to come out of 7th edition, all the plastic sculpts we got. They're also super easy to convert. The last two uh, different choices of vampires you have is the Lamian, which is the seductive vampires. Think Elizabeth Bathory or Interview with a Vampire. They're actually really interesting because 
they have a lot of powers that you can use to uh, <laughs> not seduce, but to take over the opponent's heroes and characters. And the suggested army build that you have at the end of the back is that you can use any other hero or character lord from any other army book. Oh, so you... that's good. Yeah, it is. Uh, but they can only be equipped as they could in that book. They can't take vampire stuff. And if your Lamian leader dies, then they all get frenzy because they're upset with the loss of their love. Is Belladonna a Lamian vampire? Ooh, good question. I would say no. Belladonna Lucrezia is not a Lamian vampire because she still uses poisons instead of just stabbing people. <laughs> that's, a, that's a weak argument. Though. <laughs> it's a very weak argument. Uh, I'm leaving it open to ambiguity by not having a good argument <laughs> except for that. <laughs> The last one is the one that you would... Spencer from Electric Counts would say it's cynical, and I would agree. It's one army you would see people play a lot, and that's the Necrarch army, which is basically the Super Mages. Uh, the Super Mages uh, is the Necrarch army, and their bloodlines and bloodline power is completely censored around them getting more magic than everyone else. You could give your like basic hero level, could be wizard level one, you could make anyone get better wizard level. You could summon 2d6 more extra skeletons. <laughs> you could get extra spells. So, better, better shit. Yeah, better shit. The downside, of course, being is that you can wear no magic armor, uh, mm. which is pretty significant if you're trying to make a fighting character. But back in the day, if you wanted someone to fight, you just took a white king. And then you yeah, then you just had him do magic. And that's a really potent build, as we've noticed when we play 6th edition, because you can raise entire blocks of skeleton in front of someone and just march block them. Yeah. So except for uh, this affecting like what the vampires are and their abilities in combat, uh, does it limit your army build in any way when you pick these bloodlines? No. It doesn't. Right. It does limit what sort of equipment you can take. Uh, it says every here and again that a von Karstam vampire may take, say, an extra hand weapon or great weapon. And uh, the blood dragons can cast spells, just like the Chaos Warriors, even though they wear heavy armor. And the Necros can't build any, uh, wear any magic items at all. No magic armor. Then, of course, which is one of our f favorite things from 6th edition book, uh, if you go to the very back, two pages from the end, you can do what's called a Legion of the Dead, which is basically with your opponent's consent, you can build a themed army. And here you can have, for the von Karstein, one of my favorite, you can have a Sylvanian Levy, which is basically showing that the people of Sylvania support your von Karstein lord. So you can have crossbowmen, free companies, archers, some, some empire units. And this is really where you can get your creativity to live. You can make Sylvanian huntsmen. You can make like the average Romanian cast that you can get from any pike and shot army. You can make whatever you want. You can have a Necrarch army, uh, which <laughs> which uh, pretty ironically gives you access only to skeleton and zombies as cores, but all your heroes can, ring, can ride winged nightmares. Ooh. You can also do the Lamian army where you can take, and I love it, heroes from any other Warhammer army's book or Ravening Hordes, if that book is not yet out. <laughs> nice. Ravening Hordes is such a good book. I wish we could do more with it. Yeah. Uh, then you can have Blood Dragons. And the Blood Dragon army list is really good, because here you can make Knights core. So you can play like a pseudo-vampiric uh, Bretonian. Yeah, and they can use the, the Lance formation if you decide that they're from Bretonia. They do. Well played. 
I would say that if you do that, you have to give them Fleur de Luce or something on their on their shields to properly yeah. depict that plutonium force. For sure. And you can also have yeah, you can have Graveguard as core. Oh, nice. You also have the chance of getting some shooting because what you need to remember is the vampire cats in this book have zero shooting except for the Banshee, which is a magical attack. So if you play a von Karstein or a Blood Dragon themed army, you can have some shooting. Otherwise, no. Yeah, I think that's and a then, of course, nice decision. Like the to to theme then as an attacking force, just like they did with Chaos. Yeah, and I mean it does make sense both in your creative outlet, but also thematically because. All the different bloodlines, being so different in character, demeanor, and behavior, would fight in very different manners. I mean, a noble of Aberash, he would fight in a very different way from, say, the Strigoi or the Von Karstein. The Von Karstein would, of course, levy their own troops to fight because, in their mind, they are the true inheritors of the Electric Count throne. I mean, the only thing I'm really missing is being able to buy a rune fang for one of my Vampire Count swords. But, you know, that is where it is. Something I want to mention is that they also did a complete overhaul for magic. And I'm just going to go through the differences in racing skeletons and undead for different editions. And basically, here you have the very classical. You can make a unit bigger with a classical invocation heck, or you can cast a completely new unit in which you usually get less skeletons. That's how it works yeah. in 6th edition. In 8th edition, you use the same spell for raising the dead, as well as boosting your own unit. And in 7th ed, uh, you can just raise entire blocks of them, which is hilarious. Uh, so, could we go through quickly what units they have in 6th edition? Of course. I'm sorry. They have a very diverse army list and very unique and diverse units. I'm going to do this sort of in the, the, the semi-wrong way. So I'm going to start with the course. Right. In the course, you have your classical skeleton, which is eight points here. And they come with exactly zero. They come with a hand weapon and shield. You can buy them a lot of things. You can theme them and make them differently. You can give them spear for one point of model. You can give them armor. And if you give them armor, I would really advise that you use the later games workshop kit where they all come equipped with light armor on the model. Because I remember building these in 6th edition, and you get, I think, three models in the entire box that has a modicum of armor on them. Uh, the rest are just screaming naked skeleton men. Yeah, and also the new models are really nice. They are. I would also recommend, actually, Reaper minis if you need a lot of skeletons. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Also, you have, of course, zombies. Uh, I'm a bit prejudiced against zombies because I think it's a bit of a boring thing to paint. And when we got into fantasy, the zombie-like movie craze had just started. So everybody loved running them. Yeah. Uh, it's another thing also that in 6th edition, you can raise skeletons and in 8th, you can only raise zombies or something. That is correct. Uh, you can actually. In 7th ed, you're allowed to raise only zombies, but in 8th Ed, you can raise skeletons, but you raise less than zombies, and you have to buy a special skill to do it. Mm. Here, you can raise either skeletons, or you can raise zombies. And if you raise zombies, you usually get free extra, just for free. Uh, the reason is because zombies in 6th Ed have brain dead, which means they always strike last. Always. Yeah, and they can't have any extra equipment, right? They can have a musician and a standard bearer, but nothing else, no. They can, however, go up to 40 dudes in a unit as posted 30 for a skeleton. But I mean, to be honest, uh, you're probably going to blast through 30 and 40 with skeletons because you just keep summoning. The next one is ghouls. Ghouls are also, they cost as much as a skeleton, 
Uh, you can buy exactly nothing except for an upgrade to a ghast, which is basically a sergeant. And they have the alive rule, meaning that they are vulnerable to fear and terror, which, you know. All right. Funny. And they, <laughs> they themselves don't cause fear? Yeah, they cause fear as well. So. Uh, and they can can they march outside of the general's aura? Yes, they can. They also are scavengers, which means that they're skirmishers. Oh, nice. Sound really good. And they have poisoned attacks. And in 6th edition, uniquely, they have toughness 4. Uh, they're the only core choice you get that has toughness 4. They sound really good. They do. It's just that you have to buy metal models. I can, however, tell you I was wrong. You can have a small unit as 5. All right. Oh, well, maybe yeah. I should run them. Yeah, like back then you had to buy metal models, but now I mean there are the plastic ones. Yeah, and now you get like twenty in a box. Like <laughs> for for eighteen euro, you get twenty ghouls. It is a solid core choice. Uh, what you have to remember is that skirmishes are in certain scenarios restricted or limited in how they can play. Your next choice is a base of bat swarms, which is sixty points, which is pretty huge for the undead army. Uh, basically, toughness to strength to five wounds flyers. Uh, they can they move <laughs> ten inches and they're swarm, which everybody knows the rules for, and they cause fear. Yeah, good march blockers. They are, but you very rarely see bat swarms. I don't know if it's because the models back in sixth is the same we still get today, and they're a bit wonky. But you very rarely see them. I think it's the fact that they're toughness too, and they have no native save. Yeah, still a lot of wounds to go through though. Yeah, but I mean, if you think about your like, un they're called Ungol archers, right? Yeah. How many bow do you have? Like ten? How many of them? Yeah, how many uh, of them can shoot? Like thirty. Holy shit! Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, but, if I but have like, yeah, they they'll they'll be skirmishing though, so it'll be hard to hit. Yeah. And then. If you have like three bases, that's 15 wounds you got to kill. But that's also 180 points. Yeah. Yeah, they're a useful unit though. Nice to have some flyers. No, no, you're right. If I was a tactical player, I'd definitely take them. Because against like war machines or threatening cavalry, sweeping in on the side. Yeah, the one thing you should remember is that you can only have one bat swarm in the entire army. Because that's the kind of rule we have in 6th edition, you know. And the best thing is they don't even mention it. It's just off to the side in a comment. Like, remember, you can only have one bat swarm per army. Huh. Doesn't it say, like, 0 to 1? Yeah, it says 0 to 1, like, laconically up there. Yeah. All right, so they, they're also a core, right? Yeah, they're a core choice. Uh, the last core choice is, of course, my favorite, the Direwolf. The Direwolf is 10 points. It has strength, toughness, free, and one attack. So why would you take it? Easy, because they're fast cavalry. Yeah. I love I love my wolves. They're just super iconic to have. They they work as light cha light chaff clearers. They can attack archers, which is the bane of your existence. They get strength four on the charge. Oh, nice. Yeah, they have a rule called slavering slavering charge. In later editions, they also have vanguard, which is basically like a free move in the deployment zone. And it's just super iconic to have like he has a shield here, the children of the night, what beautiful music they make. It's like a classic vampire aesthetic to have a bunch of wolves running next to you. Also, what you shouldn't do, but I did back in the day, is that you can buy from Karstein something called a wolf form. So you can move nine and then you can put in with wolves. Uh, you shouldn't because he will die nine times out of ten. I'll tell you that. So those are the core choices, five core choices. That's, yeah. Uh, then you get your four enough. special choices. You have the mighty spirit host, strength free, toughness free, 
four wounds. And this one I've played with. It has four attacks as well, and it's ethereal. Movement yeah, six, 65 Yeah, so points. annoying. You can only damage it with magic weapons. Or combat resolution, because they're still undead. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I remember some guys playing this uh, when we were doing like combat patrol, and then we just have this, and nothing could kill it, and then they would just put it in combat with your unit, and you could do fuck all. I mean, Ethereal sort of got a bad rep in later editions, because in 8th edition, you got something called a Hex Wraith, which is basically fast cavalry with magic weapons that is Ethereal and has burning attacks. So I think that sort of soured everyone on the rule itself, but... I ran my Spirit Host up against the Jimmy's Goblins, and his combat resolution actually won over me a couple of times. So then they start drying off pretty, pretty quickly. Mm. You have Felbat, which is basically a Super Bat for 20 points, two wounds. He's a flying unit with Strength 3, Toughness 3. Not, I, I'd say I see these even rarer than the Bat Swarms. Mm. And then, of course, the Mighty Graveguard. Yeah, they're a really nice unit. Also, as they're known in, in the 4th edition, Heavy Skeletons. Uh, basically, <laughs> it's a skeleton with Strength 4, Toughness 4, still Weapon Skill uh, free for some reason, a Hand Weapon and Heavy Armor. You can give them a Musician, Standard Bearer, and actually you can take a Magic Standard for up to 50 points. Nine times out of ten, you're going to take the Banner of the Barrow, which lets you hit one better than you usually do. That's pretty invaluable. You also get a White Blade, which is a Cursed Weapon that on a 6 has the Killing Blow rule. I very rarely get my Graveguard to work for a very simple reason, and that's because they're both very iconic and they're very aesthetically appealing, so people immediately know, shoot that motherfucker. <laughs> it's like the Medic in Team Fortress 2. You just get rid of him immediately. Uh, you, can, you can give them great weapons or shields, can you? Yes. You can, no, you can give them Hallbirds or shields. Oh, all right. Yeah, they're I've really never, nice. Yeah. Bo both the old and uh, new models are really good looking. I really like the, the, the old The new metal. ones look really good, yeah. Yeah, the old metal ones, I like them because they're a bit chunkier. They have, like, big robes, and uh, their uh, the, the, their skulls is, look really cool. Yeah, skulls. I agree. I mean, I've got 50 of them, and it's, it's really nice. They look a bit more like the monastic knights of the First Crusade. Yeah. The next choice is you can get Graveguard on horses, which is known as a Black Knight, uh, 5 to 20. Here you get Hand Weapon, Lance, Heavy Armor, Shield, and they ride Nightmares, which is basically a magical horse. The, the the guy who came up with that name like at the Games Workshop office must have been so satisfied with himself. Oh wait, <laughs> the hell knight? Let's call it a nightmare. Get it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's such a great pun, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, it's a good name, but like, oh, I want to be that guy at that moment. <laughs> it's like time to hand out the cocaine promotions. What have y'all got? And one was like, I've got such a good idea. I'm called the Gobbo. A gob spitter is like, hold my beer. <laughs> then, then you get your rare units. And do you know how many rare units there are, Nicholas? Uh, I'm going to guess uh, one. No, two, actually. Oh, wow. You lucky bastard. <laughs> I have none. You, you can have a banshee or you can have a black coach. The banshee is basically an ethereal model that can shoot against your leadership and add his own leadership plus, I think, a d6. And you just kill that many models. It's a, like a shriek, right? Yeah. I used it against Jimmy's uh, giant to great effect. And I've used <laughs> it in other instances. When it works, it works. But if it's still, it's ethereal. So if someone shoots with like a magic, uh, a magic arrow, it's fucked. I mean, it just is. Yeah. Sorry. I'm going to train still, some I mean... uh, magical dwarf ballistas, I think. Yeah, you can put runes on those, can't you? Yeah. 
Yeah, runes make them magical. Grumble, grumble. The next thing I could take is a 200-point black coach. The black coach is basically the cursed coach that drives uh, Jonathan Harker to Dracula's house in Bram Stoker's Dracula. It's, it's, uh, I mean, it's a huge wagon with toughness six, five wounds, a chariot save with a four plus, and a five plus ward save. It also has unit strength five, terror, large target, so it's easier to shoot, and the evocation of death rule. Uh, which is basically that you roll a dice and it can get a number of effects. It can get extra attacks, it can get killing blow, or it can improve basically all of its stats for a turn. Yeah, is it really? First of all, is it a really like, iconic uh, model and unit for the uh, Vampire Cans? and it's really good in the game. I, I faced one of these recently, and terror is no joke, in, especially in sixth edition, because like units don't usually have very good leadership and you don't get any rerolls for anything. So you can easily scare away a lot of units just by moving it towards the enemy. Well, did that guy like roll great or? Um, no, not really. You just charged in with it and then like the terror bubble just scared a bunch of units away. It, it also, I don't know, did he remember that if he causes a wound, he gets a wound back? Yes. And it can bring him above the starting amount of wounds. And as soon as he gets to 10 wounds, he becomes a, a scythed chariot. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he did remember Canis wounds. I didn't do any wounds on it. So it was like a plus six wounds at the end. So like, how many wounds did it have at first? <laughs> Five? It was probably yep. 11. Crank it up to 11. It's so funny because the black coach was actually changed in between editions. Uh, for a while, it became like a magical amplifier. Then just went back to being an insane fucking chariot. You yeah, also have. Unit. I mean, I'm happy to see that it worked. I, I'm sorry for you, obviously, but I'm just happy to see that somebody made this work sometime. Then we have the heroes and lords. It's kind of easy to go through because you have different levels of vampires, and they get increasing stats in strength, toughness, and wounds. The highest point, of course, is the vampire lord, uh, which is above the vampire count because. I, I, I think it's a missed opportunity. Anyway, the Vampire Lord is level 2, can go up to 3, strength 5, toughness 5. He also has weapon skill 8, which means you have weapon skill, I think, 10 if you're a Blood Dragon. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Basically, it's like Ivan Drago. Whatever he hits, he destroys. Uh, you can have a Master Necromancer. You can have White Lord. You can have a Wraith. Uh, Wraith become, became units in later editions, but basically Wraith is a 90-point hero that also causes terror and is ethereal and can take a magical item of up to 50 points. Uh, nice. The f magical items for Vampire Counts in 6th edition are a bit infamous in one way that it was open for some abuse because there are some items that are basically just like uh, you get an extra spell. And the Vampire Count spells are pretty good. So the ability to make an entire unit just march once again and capable of uh, coming into charging is really good when you're such a slow army. Or you could just throw a fireball. I mean, 50 points for that that Wraith is pretty good. You can get a lot of things. Yeah. So uh, how do you play the Vampire Counts in, well, sorry, in 6th edition? How, how do you play the Vampire Counts? Me, personally? Yeah, in general. so you personally and in general. Uh, me personally, I prefer like running a classical Vampire Counts skeleton army. First, you have two big blocks of skeletons. Around 30 is usually hitting the soft spot if you play 10 to 1500 points. Uh, some wolves for outlying flankers and just uh, getting in someone's sides. Then you beef up with at least two mages because as soon as your mages die, the magic starts to fade. 
So you want one like buffing Necromancer, preferably level two. Uh, and his job, his entire job is to make new vampire units in front or inside of the enemy and buffing his own. Then you have the vampire count himself. Uh, give him something that lets him fight a bit, but also make sure that he has a good delivery system for getting in there. I put mine usually with Graveguard, but I found from experience that it's better to put him with skeletons because he can just keep raising that skeleton unit. Uh, at one time, yeah. I've gotten it up to a skeleton unit of 60, <laughs> uh, which was just locked in combat with Jens until the end of all time because I he can't kill me faster than I can raise his dead against him, which was really funny. Beyond that, I'd say stock up on Graveguard, but even better, if you can spring for the models, and there's a lot of conversion potential here, get some Black Knights. Uh, Black Knights with a blood, blood Dragon mounted uh, vampire is a really potent threat. If you don't play the Blood Dragon themed list, you are weapon skill four, you have the Killing Blow special rule, and you're a fear causing knight. A lot of people would claim that 6th edition is Cavalry Hammer, so having imagine having undead, sturdy, fairly fast fear-causing knights. Yeah, but, I don't, don't yeah. see these very often in undead armies. You, you should see like a lot of infantry and some bats or uh, wolves. I think that the vampire count players are usually pretty decent at self-restriction. Uh, I might be wrong, you know, I might just be like, haha, surely we are the most suave and capable of players. <laughs> Dwarves! Uh, but, <laughs> I'm sorry, my beef in six that is only dwarves and high elves. Because they keep winning over me. <laughs> uh, but usually what you won't see is, you're right, the knights. The black knights, you don't see them because they do cost 45 points per model, making the most expensive units you can actually have in a Vampire Count's army. And having numbers to your advantage is really good. Also, in Vampire Counts, no, in 6th edition, if you outnumber the enemy and you cause fear, you know what happens, right? Yeah. If you uh, uh, fail combat against them, you automatically break. Yeah. Uh, so I found that out last time I played. And again, the people I played with, you guys thought I was making fun of you, but I literally didn't know that. <laughs> and that's something they changed in later editions. But the terror and fear is super potent. Yeah, it's really strong in 6th edition. Also, I found out that if you charge something when you have fear and they fail their leadership and you outnumber them, they run away straight away when you charge yep. them. Uh, yeah, I know. And I mean, I saw that happen to Jens as well. He was going to charge me, and he failed his fear test. He just stood still, and then I could charge him. Yeah. And yeah, getting a charge really off, good. as you know, is great in 6th edition. It is indeed. I like how I'm trying to present myself as some great strategic genius when I'm basically like, <laughs> and as you know, fellow suave, capable general, hitting someone <laughs> before they hit you is a recipe for victory. And you're like, yes, that is literally how war works. Did you know that cannons are potent? Uh, no. Yes. So basically, that's what you need to do. I'd recommend you have either some bat swarms or some uh, wolves just to do some outriding and chase off uh, archery because shooting is going to be the bane of your existence, just like playing beastmen. Uh, if you play a von Karstein army, you can choose a vampiric power. That means that everybody gets minus one to shooting and all fires mm. are grounded. <laughs> <laughs> which could, you know, affect you as well. What you should not do under any circumstance if you play Vampire Count 6th Edition is take the special character Zacharias the Unliving. Uh, the reason being is that your friends, your erstwhile now enemies, will pick this model up and beat you to death with it. Is he uh, that bad? Zacharias the Unli Everliving is, I think, uh, he's 1,015 points, 715 <laughs> for Zacharias and 300 for the Undead Dragon he rides. <laughs> 
He has all six bloodline powers, meaning that he bless, gets plus one to casting spells. He gets an extra <laughs> wizard level. <laughs> he knows all six necromantic spells. <laughs> and what is it? Yeah, he gets one extra spell as well. And he, when he casts the skeleton spell, he will raise 4d6 skeleton. He yeah, can also, a, yeah. It's a really good model, though. Yeah, and he can also... It, I'm sorry, I ain't even done. He can cast the Dark Hand of Death once per magic phase, which is a really good spell. And did I tell you he has an unlimited amount of Dispel Scrolls? <laughs> like he's one no, per turn or what? No, no, yeah. No, it just says he has unlimited number of Dispel Scrolls. He can use one of them in each of the opposing players' magic phase. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, I'm just going to spell all of your spells. <laughs> also, ain't done. He has a 4-plus ward save. Cash all. <laughs> Cash money. I've seen yeah. this guy run exactly once, and nobody wanted to play him after that. Which, which is harsh, because we were teenagers, and buying this character was probably all the money he had for that year. It was a really big... It's a beautiful model, like you said, and it's super expensive, but playing against him is not a fun experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah. some some characters in 6th were just insane. Yeah, the only special characters you got in 6th edition was uh, Zacharias Deving and Manfred von Karstein. Uh, Vlad was taken out of 6th edition for some reason. Uh, Krell, Neferata, Heinrich Kemmler, they came in White Dwarf articles at later junctures, uh, but mm. not the main book. Again, so, being a yeah, uh, carry on. Uh, being a kids live player, you know all about that. But basically, they really interacted with the community in a good way by bringing a lot of stuff out in White Dwarf. Unfortunately, if you didn't get that White Dwarf, you were kind of screwed. Yeah, better have that subscription. Yeah, <laughs> what's that, little Timmy? <laughs> you don't have the latest White Dwarf. Well then, no way to counter shooting for you. <laughs> um. So yeah. So how did they? What did they do for seventh edition for Vampire Kings? Uh, for oh yeah, just one last thing. Sorry, I know I keep rambling about this. Uh, one thing I want to shout out to sixth edition: uh, the vampire sculpts are beautiful. They hold up to today. You have everything from the classic again Bella Lugosi von Karstein vampires with the back slicked hair and their capes, and then you have the monstrous giant Strigoi that looks something between you know. Mr. Hyde from Dr. Jekyll. And you can get like the seductive Laumian vampires. One of the Laumian sculpts was just a naked character that you could only order apparently at certain junctures in GV's history. <laughs> and the Blood Dragons was the most numerous sculpt. And you had everything from a similarity to Francis Ford Coppola's uh, Dracula in his blood red armor to a noble knight. And then you had, of course, the wizened, slightly Egyptian forms of the Necrarch. A shout out to these sculpts because I know that they got a lot of people into Vampire Counts to begin with. And even to these days, they're pretty excited. If you can find one and buy one at a used market, I would definitely recommend it. They're a treat to paint up even to this day. Yeah, they are really good looking. A lot of the, the character models. Yeah, it's even gone so far that if I've asked Nicholas as a personal favorite, if he sees any in England, he just buys them for me. Uh, it's true. I do have two of them in my drawers right now that I got to get to you somehow. Yeah. Are you coming to Sweden again? Are you banished now? <laughs> Been uh, yeah. too long. <laughs> That's just want to say. Uh, for 7th edition, uh, putting aside the egregious grievances that we both have with 7th edition as a game system, 7th edition brought in a lot of cool things for Vampire Counts. First of all, plastic sculpts all around, uh, new skeletons, 
<laughs> new grave guards. No, no grave guards, actually. That's eighth edition. Uh, new skeletons. And also, no zombies. Uh, the zombie kit today is the same one you got in sixth edition from 2001. Don't fix what ain't broken. <laughs> no, they're like, Jarvis, I've noticed people still keep playing zombies. Must be the amazing kit. Yes, rather so. More cocaine. <laughs> I went for Patrick Stewart there, didn't work out. Also, you got some new sculpts, uh, still in white metal, of course. And you got a couple of new units. Uh, what you did get was, of course, the Vargulf. Uh, the Vargulf is, in the lore, super appealing. When a vampire loses, when a vampire, blah, when a vampire loses count of his inner beast and he really degenerates into bloodlust, he becomes a Vargulf, which is the beast made manifest. Uh, how to describe it? It looks like a giant war gorilla vampire with huge tattered wings uh, it is a motherfucker i've played it recently and it has terror regeneration it can run i think 18 uh, frenzy of course steadfast and it's vampiric so it doesn't crumble if it loses salt yeah it's a crazy it really guy he's a crazy guy definitely I'm trying to recall. They got something else in 7th edition that I really like. And... Uh, the, the Blood Knights. <laughs> yes, the Blood Knights. <laughs> you actually had some really good insight in the Blood Knights. Do you want to share? <laughs> yeah, that uh, they're crazy expensive. They always were. Like, I remember uh, when I was looking through like, the Games Workshop uh, web store and then we went over these. Like, what? These are like five cavalrymen. Why are they like 60 pounds? And that's all I remember of those guys. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I played a couple of games in 7th edition before I did my mandatory period uh, serving at the pleasure of His Majesty. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, they're really good game-wise. You see people convert them because they are basically black knights, but also vampires. And as I've had another person point out to me that in 7th edition, uh, vampires are mages. So the blood dragons were actually also magic batteries, something they removed mm. for 8th edition. So basically, I think strength 5, toughness 6. No, toughness 5, strength 6 knights with 2 attack minimum per character uh, who got wounds back. <laughs> and just, I think they had weapon skill 6 or something. Yeah. Uh, 2 wounds per, and I mean, they're really good. Yeah, it's a really cool unit as well that you can have like vampires as actual units. Yeah, and that's something they brought back a bit in 7th edition. We have the Vargulf, of course. We have these. Uh, they put the focus a bit more on the vampires themselves, which is pretty cool. Another thing they got was, I think the Cryptars are a edition. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the, the big big ghouls, right? Yeah, exactly. The Cryptars and the Vargeist, I believe they're called. Yeah. So for 8th edition, which you actually play with these guys, right? He said, with contemptuous disdain. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> for 8th edition, like everyone else, of course, they got a mega kit. That's what they got in 7th edition. They got the Terrorgeist. Mm. They got the Terrorgeist Zombie Dragon Dual Kit. All right. Quiet. I take it because it's enraptured attention of learning more about 8th edition sculpts. Uh, the Terrorgeist <laughs> is to basically... remember the, how the dragon looked like. Uh, but the, it's the one the... that looks like a zombie dragon, but also like a nightmarish bat vampire. Yeah, I remember the bat. So it's that one. All right. I've never played with it, but I did paint it, and it's a treat to paint. I mean, like we discussed before, I had some prejudice against these big sculpts. I didn't really think it's going to work out, and it's a blatant cash grab. But it has so much details, and it's so fun to work with. Game-wise, maybe it's not the greatest. <laughs> I mean, it's 
a flying sort of souped down uh, like zombie dragon but except for poison breath it got the shriek i told you about before where you i take your leadership against my leadership and i add 2d6 i believe no 1d6 plus the wounds i have left so at best i can get my leadership plus 12 against your leadership i mean your average right. is 6 still pretty decent uh, and of course he has poison attacks and it can fly i'd recommend it it's really fun so for eighth edition what did the vampire counts get well first of all a new book because uh, one of the sort of egregious examples of GWE sort of petering out against IDs in 8th edition is that every book just got better than the other one. So this one came out, I believe, just before Dark Elves and Demons, meaning it was really good when it came, but not really thereafter, because then you had, you know, Dark Elf Mania and the Demon Mania. And here you got, first of all, a revised magic system. As I mentioned, in 6th edition, you had the Bloodlines. In 7th edition, they took all the bloodline powers and said, like, these are the archetypes for making a vampire. So it has sort of make your own vampire system. And I thought that was a really neat idea. It's a bit like a role-playing game. You can say, like, I'm a scholarly vampire, so I can take a scholarly skill and a martial skill, or I'm a leadership. And basically, they took, I think, somewhere around 30 different skills and abilities, and you could make your own vampire, and very clearly tied in the background that he is. Uh, for 8th edition, they made it more of a pick and choose, so you can, like, buy different skills for different points causing what's known as a blender lord which lets you get always strikes first uh, a higher weapon skill uh, gets wounds back and he can also get more attacks on every hit of a six sounds sounds like eighth edition <laughs> it sure does <laughs> uh, also you got like the super kits uh, you got the mortis engine for necromancers which is the huge swirling throne of unholy power which also, I mean, it still stings me a bit. They're like, why? Well, yes, obviously, necromancers have always ridden these huge boat thrones to combat. We just never mentioned it before. <laughs> oh, no, why would you? And the vampires got the blood coven throne uh, because nothing says class, like being an undead female vampire perched atop two winding stairs at a giant basin of blood surrounded by half-naked handmaidens fighting for you. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're really cool kits. I'm really infused by them. What I can see game-wise, one of them, the Mortis Engine, is really good. Basically, it boosts characters around you, and it gives them regenerate. And you also do damage against enemy spellcasters. And when it blows up, I think it uh, it blows up D6, 2d6 inches plus the turn number, and everyone within it takes an unholy amount of wounds. Nice. And it's a chariot. Yeah, the blood coming from is basically like the Lamian vampires I referenced earlier. Uh, you come up, you try to hit it, and you can get like transfixed, beguiled, or seduced, which means that either you just stand there looking dumb, or you hit your own friends, or I get to take over your characters, which is just funny, objectively. And it boosts, um, boosts uh, your vampires around it. Also in 8th edition, maybe not 7th edition, you could get a corpse cart. Yes, I uh, remember this thing. I really yeah. like it. The corpse card is really neat. Basically, it's a necromancer riding a wagon, collecting the dead around him. And bring out your edition, dead. We... Bring out your dead. Oh, he's not dead yet. Yeah. Oh, great point. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, so in 8th edition, you can actually just have a necromancer riding it as well. Nice. In general, in 8th edition, what the vampires got was a lot of more boosting items and support monsters vehicles. And you also got like the super ghouls, the crypt horrors, which are souped up ghouls. And you could get the Vargeist, which is basically flying, skirmishing bat vampires 
These are vampires that have been lip, li locked in crypts and forcibly robbed of blood just to starve them, make them insane as possible, and then you herd them towards the enemies. Cash or? <laughs> Cash money. Uh, also, you got some of the special characters back. You have Vlad, you have Manfred, you have Conrad from Karstein as well. Uh, Conrad being introduced in 7th edition. Actually, he was introduced in 4th edition. That's really funny because Manfred is the... No, Conrad is the crazy one, if you remember. They have a crazy vampire count who is insane even in death and also so in unlife. So he has a rule called uh, not all bats and the belfry. So basically you can get the stupid rule. In 4th Ed Undead, he even has... He, they mention he can't do magic, just in the lore. And then in the actual crunch of the game, he has a chained up necromancer that he trails behind him that does magic for him. <laughs> nice. Which I think that's just a great forfeit thing. So in 8th edition, of course, uh, as we've discussed before, a lot of things got cheaper. So running giant hordes of skeletons became feasible from a point of view. Uh, ghouls became properly undead like everyone else, and they're not skirmishers anymore, so you can rank them up. Uh, they got back their poison attack. Uh, you got the opportunity of now, they removed the bloodline from after 6th edition, as I mentioned, but now they made a new character class, which is called a Strigoi Ghoul King. Uh, again, a bit better at fighting, uh, can't do as much magic. He can also yeah. ride a terror geist. Yeah, the Strigoi are like a step apart from the other vampires. They're not really civilized and they don't really look the same, right? No, I mean, they've issued all trappings of civilization, just given into the inner beast. Uh, but also, in choosing a Strigoi Ghoul King as a main character, you can make a themed army around ghouls. Just like insane scavengers, pale, horrendous forms in the moonlight running out of their caves to attack people. It works yeah. in pretty well. Uh, also, ma as we've discussed before, 8th edition is a bit more high magic than 6th edition. Uh, so raising skeletons and casting undead skulls at your enemy became a bit easier. And Vampire Count, of course, being one of the magic armies, uh, meaning it's not unusual to see a Vampire Count player just slinging 16 dice casually. You also got more items that let you like save magic dice or dispel or steal. I'd say playing 8th edition is fun. It's just a bit different from playing 6th edition as Vampire Counts. You will see huger armies and more focus on magic. So, I mean, yeah. But still, like we discussed, we prefer the nitty-gritty part of 6th edition. Yeah, so do you, do you, have you noticed that you play the army very differently between the editions? Or is it just like 8th edition is like 6th edition, but more magic and bigger beasts? To me, it is, but I'm a shitty player and a poor general. Uh, to me, basically, what I wanted to do was take my huge blocks of infantry and charge my enemy, which I did. And my friend, Jimmy, uh, you know from SLG, you've met him. Yeah. He played his Skaven, and he was like, oh, you want to fight? Bring it. So we just had huge blocks of Skaven scurrying into huge blocks of skeletons and ghouls. And in the middle, like my vampire, Blood Dragon, stood hollering challenges at his gray seer, just swinging atop a giant fucking warpstone bell. <laughs> I will face you upon the field of battle. Squeak, squeak. No, fuck you. <laughs> and then he cast magic and blew up his own bell, sucking like 15 rats into the vacuum and remaining awesome. rats charged my ghouls. <laughs> just, it's fun. Uh, it's insane and fun. And like his rat ogres charged my grave guard. And they, I was really getting fucked up until my VAR guys decided to just charge into the side and tear people apart. What I like about 8th edition is that you can make several different builds. 
which you can't really do with 6th edition without being allowed to use the themed lists. 6th edition, just as stand, is super fun. Uh, but like we discussed before, I would like to see a few more choices of cores and the selection. I think that comes from the fact that I'm also spilled by role-playing games, so I want to be able to like choose everything. Um, like in the old Empire book, like I have this regiment from this part of the Empire, meaning that they can have this weapon, and they're also slightly better at this, but they are afraid of citrus fruit or something. Like <laughs> They consider it an abomination. I, I've noticed you, people play it differently. In 8th edition, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people who play 8th edition to win. I've not encountered them yet. And at Club I Play, I don't think I will. So I would really recommend playing Vampire Counts in any way. Are they appealing? Yes. Is painting 100 skeletons hard? No. I mean, not if you do it in a clever way. Back in the day, with just dry brush. I used to dry brush like 60 skeletons. Yeah, and it looks really good. Just doing it easy because you can see a lot of armies uh, and from far they look awesome like just a bunch of skeletons and then you look closer and like oh it's just dry brush but it still looks good it does i mean jimmy and i have discussed it because he's a far better painter than me uh, and i'm not uh, the three easy ways to do skeletons and also zombies is either dry brush and i wouldn't recommend dry brushing skeletons but you can uh, dry brushing zombies but you can uh, the second one is to rattle candom uh, either white or like black and then bone and then you can just dip them i've never dipped but apparently people do that for zombies like you take a model and you just dip it into like a shade it's apparently what the kids are doing these days <laughs> dipping i like i like how you say it like you're not young <laughs> <laughs> the joke is nicholas is like one year younger than me i'm just really really i'm just really worn out and decrepit looking i look like melkir the undead it looks like Krell. <laughs> I look like Krell. I look like Krell without the raw natural charisma of a black axe. <laughs> and the last way you can do skeletons super easy is just to buy a fucking airbrush, <laughs> which is what I've done. Um, it's actually super easy with an airbrush. Uh, black, then you do bone. Then from a cinephile hair highlight, you take some bone with white, then you have some white. Paint the metals. Uh, with the time you've saved, you can now do like 50 skeletons and you can even do different patterns on the clothing. I went with a classical blue and red for mine because I wanted them to be from the Border Prince area close to Sylvania, which ties into the sort of armies we're playing. Playing 6th edition, I would recommend that you try to get some of the metal sculpts or you can get different off-brands, even if, as we say in the podcast, uh, I'd say you either get like Blood Dragons or Necrocs, or you can just get the Von Karsteins. The Von Karsteins are baseline and can do pretty much anything you want them to. Uh, I really recommend the Blood Dragons because they're super fun to play. You won't be as good at magic, which might seem counterintuitive. Maybe play a magic-heavy army. But you can also just buy in like an enslaved necromancer. If you want me to give tips about where to get the best skeletons, send a message to the Old World Lives, the Facebook page. Is it he fun? Knows, he knows where the best skeletons are. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a legs man. Grave digger. A yeah, I'm a grave digger. <laughs> it's got to be an idea. Sorry, sweet joke. And yeah, I mean, it's really iconic and I get the appeal. If you yeah. like magic, if you like doing hordes, if you like the possibility of doing powerful conversions and unit fillers, then I would recommend it. Yeah. Also, if it's, you, uh, yeah. like a certain thing about the vampire counts is that you have like your hero or your heroes that those are the only like characters in the army. The rest are just their mindless saves kind of. So that's a very appealing theme as well, just to have the leader guy. 
and also, I mean, it makes it easy to write a story around him. Yeah. What would you say is the best part about playing against the Vabrakan player? It's just uh, such an iconic enemy. Like, you, you don't have to think very far to see, like, oh, why are we fighting these guys? These fit so well into any story you put them into. Uh, and also, it's challenging. Like, because it's not just uh fighting like empire or whatever like oh they have some guys and they have some shooting and they have magic like, you have to think differently with these guys like you can't just rush headlong and fight them because then they'll just raise more skeletons so you have to be clever and, and it really feels like you're fighting like a, a boss fight or something it's just very entertaining you play kislev and i know you have a lot of like good field experiences from facing different armies lately would you say like the large amount of uh, cavalry helped you like decapitate the armies before they got going or i've only played once against vampire counts and they uh, they made me run away pretty much <laughs> uh, <laughs> but from what i can like i don't know like it's the, uh, the outnumbering thing is a really big thing for vampire counts like you want to outnumber and cause fear and uh Kislev don't have very big units and they usually want to charge in and uh, break the enemy and make them run away and that you can't really do that against vampire kids because you'll charge a block of skeletons and they'll still have like five guys left in the bed like worst case for vampire cast players and then they'll just raise more and drag it down so i think it's a pretty hard army to to play against as an as like a cavalry army yeah i mean the bane of your existence as a vampire is both cavalry outflanking you or hitting you in the side because remember, if you can hit a vampire unit in the side, you can at least lock them up for lock them up for a long time. Even if I keep right raising them, and also shooting. I mean, basically, cavalry shooting is my worst nightmare. With maybe Ekaterina throwing up an ice wall to denying me movement, like a wall of skeletons. Yeah, <laughs> skeleton on skeleton combat. Oh my god, that game would take so long time. Uh, also, I mean, in a, in a Vampire Count army, you will have some units that invariably are more tactically viable and valuable. So your Grave Guard and your Black Knights, try to find a way of protecting them. There is a banner you could take, or magic, but again, then you're paying to protect an investment that's already costing a lot. So it's easy to see why people just go for more skeletons. Well-tried tactic. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've I've really, <laughs> I've really held almost a monologue here. So thank you, Nicholas, for standing out. No, that was for good. Being very, to, very informative. It's nice to hear the story way back from 4th edition, how the army evolved and how they play. Yeah, I mean, oh yeah, the 6th edition Vampire Count book, it's super appealing. Now I want to go paint some more vampires. All right. Uh, thank you all for listening. And uh, I don't know what will be after this segment, but you'll hear from us soon. Yep. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening, guys. Get into Vampire Counts. We are tools, Neferata. You call us sisters, but we are but pieces on your game board. You collect us and board us, and sometimes you spend us. Sometimes you spend us for ambition. Other times, it is for spite. And we love you for it, because we cannot help but to do so. You unmake us as easily as Nagish's crown threatened to unmake you, and remake us in your image. And welcome back to this outro. And that was there was something wrong with uh, the main segment, wasn't it? Yes. Well, a, a lot of static noise, and I I only heard Nicholas. Yeah, it's probably the auto censoring.
of a, a certain yeah. podcast member. Yeah, so I suppose there will be a Vampire Counts episode next time. Yeah. Speaking of next time, we would want to ask you listeners for some questions. Hobby questions, game-related questions. Edition-related questions, all kinds of questions. You could ask about the chili plants on my windowsill if you want. It's not probably that interesting or relevant, but they're there. You can ask us when, we're, when we'll have Krell back again, whenever that will be. Or you could ask us something that we could actually answer. But yeah, if you want us to, to answer hypothetical questions, send them in as well. You can send them in on Facebook, on email, on uh, our Instagram, to you us personally. Ask, yeah, and uh, you can even ask them in our posts when we release this episode. Yeah, so if you listen to our previous hobby episode, with listener questions you probably know what this is all about we want to do another one and uh, we really appreciate to hear from you guys because you're probably the reason why we're doing this other than we just want to talk about the game with each other yeah you, you can see us as the blood but you guys are all the heart we need you to pump us around and not collect our bloods in chalices and our skulls on thrones yes please don't do that that's not nice only corn players do that yeah Pretty much. And some darker play layers. But uh, those people are special and I'm not sure they're honest hearts. Or I really can't go on with this. It's too hard. <laughs> it's too hard. Rene, you know who you are. We love you, but you're special. Everyone, Kane is corn. That's why. Or is corn Kane? My brain hurts. Yeah. So while the brain is hurting and the blood is melting, uh, yeah, this is it for this episode. See you in the next one. <laughs> Remember, stay square.